0: Father, as we have celebrated your faithfulness in this hymn, and so now we do in prayer, thanking you for your consistent, unfailing, steadfast love toward us, especially as we consider our salvation this morning, the faithfulness of our God, and going to such great lengths, in that you sent your one and only Son, in the fullness of time, to die in the place of sinners such as us, reminds us of your grace and mercy, And the extent of your steadfast love unto your own. The promise and fullness of your covenant satisfied, fulfilled in the one perfect priest, prophet, king, sacrifice, Jesus Christ, our sovereign and savior, our mediator, our intercessor forever before the throne of grace. This day as we open up his holy word, where the revelation of these truths and their application resonates from the pages of scripture with perennial universal, eternal authority, I pray that our hearts would be bowed low in submission and that, our, and that our minds would be resolved to obey and that our spirits would be encouraged and revived and that our testimony would be confident and consistent and for the lost that there might be the occasion to repent and believe as your word is proclaimed in spirit and in truth. And as we see ourselves in light of this, we would turn from our sin and walk according to the standards, the statutes, the precepts, the testimonies, the word and promise of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, by the grace of God and in his kindness and faithfulness, we consider the Word of God together in Psalm 119. Turn there with me as you're able, if you would, and let us behold the 20th stanza in this great acrostic song, verses 153 through 160, under the title Resh. This, of course, the 20th letter in the Hebrew alphabet, as we've come to recognize and also introduces each verse in the original tongue. The eight verses of the Reish stanza again begin... With the 20th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, reminding us in literary form of what has been the constant theme, that the word of God is sufficient for every trial of life. And in the example the author gives today of his own bondage and oppression, we find the word of God is indeed uh, sufficient for the trial of slavery itself. The aim of this morning's message is to exhort the hearer from God's word, the only and ultimate source of life. The word of God, according to the psalmist, is the only ultimate source of life. And so today we are reminded from his words of that forever truth. With that introduction and your heart and reverence, bowing before the word of God, would you stand with me as you're able? and Let us hear the scriptures proclaimed in our hearing today. Psalm 119, 153 through 160, the raced stanza. Here is the word of God. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So each of the original Hebrew verses of stanza 20, beginning with the 20th letter in the alphabet, Resh, provide for us once again the testimony of the sufficiency of God's word, As the psalmist marks another chapter in his life, it would appear as well as another stanza in this great acrostic hymn. Here in this chapter, the journey of the believing author has found the the word of God to be unfailing and sufficient. Yes, through the darkest of trials and through a long journey indeed, as we approach the end of this song, we have just two more sections to go. Well, stanza 19's theme theme, rested on that great summary commandment. So our last message focused on this, to some degree, Deuteronomy 6, 5, which gives us this instruction, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Stanza 20 acknowledges a world where most follow this, this commandment as applied to their idols. That is to say, we are wired, naturally speaking, To love something with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. The problem in our sin is that until God changes our hearts, our hearts are applied, our love and affections to the wrong thing. In our sin, it comes naturally to love our ideas of God, our assumptions about God, or our substitutes for God with all our heart. The psalmist spares no lyrics qualifying what true devotion and worship look like. His words over and over again, referring more than 158 times by my count to the glories of the word of God, are indeed a measure to hold our desires accountable to what is truly praiseworthy, glorious, lovely, powerful, authoritative. Just as Judas remind us that in Christ alone, in his word is dominion, power, authority, and majesty. So the psalmist echoes that same sentiment, reminding us that the law, the promise, the word, the testimonies, the statutes, and the commandment of the Lord, these things are worthy of our wholehearted devotion. So as we uh, see this here, we, are also, we also notice, as we've moved further along in this song, through this year and a half or so of preaching, one stanza a month that the psalmist is incessantly emphasizing that one cannot love the Lord and dismiss his law and word. We can imagine the stanza on the lips of Joseph, imprisoned in Egypt, who clung to God's word in spite of his tests, even tests unto slavery or false imprisonment and so forth. Nevertheless, it was the word of God that he clung to and proved to be his help and stay no matter the circumstances. Meanwhile, for 20 plus years, his father Joseph has been in prison to another kind of oppression, if you will, the despair at the loss of his son. And for Jacob, Psalm 119, 153 through 160 would have been treasured words as well and would have been well fitted for his lips as he mourned the loss and trusted God during this dark period of his life. Job and his great afflictions come to mind as well. This song could be the soundtrack for all sorts of difficulties. But for everyone, including us today, the repentant believer's rejection of the shackles of sin is also a relevant application for the 20th stanza. We also note that the admonitions, the implicit admonitions of Psalm 119, 153 through 160 overlap with our last message in Jude. According to Jude, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God as we persistently wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And uh, as we see that theme, or as we recognize that theme from the New Testament, we also see continuity here. The psalmist has learned, according to the word of God, to consistently rely and wait for the mercy of the Lord. To not be distracted or led astray by false promises of assurance, but to stake his claim, even through trial and even through long periods of waiting on the word of God as his hope and stay. Matthew Henry comments on this test with, on this text, I think this could be a commentary on Jude as well, our message from last week, quote, "The closer we cleave to the Word of God, both as our rule and as our stay, the more we have." The more assurance we have of deliverance. Christ, the advocate of his people, their redeemer, Christ is the advocate of his people and their redeemer. Those who were quickened by his spirit and grace when they were dead in trespasses and sins often need to have the work of grace revived in them, according to the word of promise. That first uh, sentence again, the closer we cleave or cling. To the Word of God, both as our rule and as our stay, the more assurance we have of deliverance. The Word of God is the rule and stay of the author. And this is apparent through the course of the text. Rule, the standard by which to judge everything else. Stay, the ground and the assurance of His eternal hope. So let us be reminded of these things as we behold this text in a little greater depth today. Let me give you a heading. The guarantee of life according to three things the Lord's promise, the Lord's rules, and the Lord's steadfast love. The psalmist asks that the Lord might give him life. Give me life, he cries, according to your promise, according to your rules, and according to your steadfast love. Those are three appeals for life that appear in our text today and by which we'll organize this message, Lord willing. So let us consider, first of all, under the heading of promise 153 through 154, the guarantee of life according to the Lord's promise. Look on my affliction, the psalmist says, and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. This plea for life in the next verse, 154, plead my cause and redeem me, give me life according to your promise. So on what ground is the psalmist assured life? On the ground, or the basis, the foundation, the assurance of the promises of God. Because God has promised life, the psalmist knows that his prayer will be answered. I have to pause here and note something just beautiful in the, another pattern I spotted in this psalm. Is anyone familiar with fractals? Uh, fractal is basically the idea is that the design in a small portion is a mirror image of the design of the whole. So things that are build, fra- built fractally, you have an, uh, they have an element of the design that is the basis, and then it gets compli- more and more complicated. And so fractal imagery, as it relates to uh, mathematical equations, uh, since the advent of and advancement of computer technology, has given these amazing imageries online. And as you zoom in on a small portion, you find it contains within itself a whole beautiful landscape of design, unique in some ways, but also a mirror image, or also a a reflection of the pattern of the whole. So this is an analogy to analyze the beauty, I would say, of the literary text of Psalm 119. You can zero in and see beauty, and you can back away and see beauty. You can see repetitions and parallels, but then as you consider them, just the literary genius of this work comes to the fore. There's four verses that are similar, One from our last stanza, three from this. And they all have to do with this appeal for life. Notice in 149, the similarity. Hear my voice, this verse, according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. So give me life here, he says, according to your justice. And then those other three which make the framework for this sermon, promise, rules, and steadfast love. So notice, he says, hear my voice. So his appeal for audience, the Lord might hear him, is based upon... The Lord in his, the attribute of the Lord, his steadfast love. Give me audience, hear my voice according to your steadfast love. And then he says, give me life according to just to your justice. Then justice becomes the basis of his next appeal in 154, a parallel verse. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to justice. And then that justice supplied in his case. Plead my cause and redeem me. Rule on my behalf. Represent me, be my advocate, be my lawyer in the court case that is waged against me, so to speak. And then he cries for life again. Give me life according to your promise. And then the promise of the Lord becomes the basis for his next appeal in 154. Great is your mercy, O Lord. The mercy of the Lord is the promise and hope of his covenantal relationship, arrangement, and guarantees in his interaction with us. Then he follows this with another appeal for life. Give me life according to your rules. And then this basis for this appeal to life rules becomes the subject then of his next appeal in 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your rules and consider how your rules have become my joy in so many words. And then finally he says, give me life according to your steadfast love, which then comes full circle to the basis for audience. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. I just love to recognize these patterns in the study and fruitful close study of Psalm 119 and other portions of scripture sometimes reveal these gems. And I see it as sort of the threads woven. You know, you can see a loom with threads running vertical and I think it's called a shuttle that passes through those back and forth. And at first you think, well, what's going on here? And it doesn't have much purpose, but then you step back and you look. And by the time the uh, expert a weaver. Is that what you call somebody who weaves something? I suppose. By the time he's done, you see this beautiful tapestry of interwoven patterns. You look at a single thread and you don't recognize its full purpose until it's woven in the whole. And Psalm 119, I've built more of a relationship with this text because of studying it and preaching it over and over again. And I can't get over how all the ideas of the sufficiency of God's word have woven together. And then towards the end of the psalm, you step back and you see across the course of this psalmist's long journey of life through you know, 16, 17, 18 trials that are deep and protracted and difficult and counting. Nevertheless, the faithfulness and the sufficiency of the Lord has built a testimony of His grace to His servant over the course of life. This is one of the great benefits and blessings we learn from Psalm 119. The longer you cling to Christ, the more beautiful the testimony of His faithfulness, the faithfulness that we have just sung about, to you is becoming. Now, sometimes in the thick of things, we get so close that all we see is the shuttle passing by at lightning speed. When by the, but when we pause and study the Word of God and with the perspective that His gospel brings and the work of God over time and the benefit of the story of those in Scripture and the written record of the faithfulness of the Lord to the psalmist in Psalm 119, it gives us the ability to step back a little bit from the picture and to see what God is doing to step back from the fabric and to see the beauty of what God has woven. And in this, it's an opportunity for us to build our own faith. In spite of the difficulty you're feeling right now, in spite of the trial and how uh, hard it is and demanding on your soul, there is a beautiful purpose to it. And Psalm 119 reminds us of this, even in, if you will, it's fractal symmetry. Don't you love that term, fractal symmetry? you can write it down and impress somebody with it later. Secondly, persistence. Under promise, we see the psalmist is demonstrating by this time in the psalm the value of consistency and persistence, endurance over time. 153, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Turn with me, if you would, to a helpful cross-reference in Luke 18. Plead my cause and redeem me according to your promise. All right already, we might ask and we might cry out as we see for the 158th time, the psalmist referring once again to his hope and stay the word of God. But what we learn in Psalm 119 is there is value and faith building power in persistence, in consistent prayer, sometimes for the same thing over a long period of time. And this is echoed, of course, in the words of Jesus and pictured in this parable of what's come to be known as the importunate widow. So that's like a fancy older word. Importunate means insistent to the point of annoyance. This lady will not go away. She will be consistent. She will persist until she gets an answer to a prayer, if you will. Verse one, then he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So, that's, so this parable opens with its explanation and interpretation. What is the purpose of this story? That you would always pray and not lose heart. Be like the psalmist. He said, Jesus continuing, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Will he find faith on earth? So, of course, the argument here is from the lesser to the greater. A guy who really doesn't, is not necessarily righteous, cares little for righteousness, nevertheless is persuaded by the insistent, continual appeal of this widow. And then the argument is how much more will the Lord who loves, and has great concern for his people, his elect, his called ones, his children, not answer their repeated pleas. But will the Son of Man find this kind of faith on earth? Isn't that interesting? Repeatedly coming to the Lord over and over again, consistent and insistent, according to Jesus, is a sign of faith persistence. The value of persistence is taught to us in this parable as well as the very structure of Psalm 119. This stanza and the body of this great song thus far are marked, if nothing else, by perseverance in prayer and obedience. This reads, the psalmist reads at this point in this section, the stanza as the cry of an old man, I would say, who was once young Earlier in the song, in the, earlier in the song we, we have him in the course of his life's journey clinging to the word of God. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By disciplining himself along life's journey according to the word of God. He has kept his way pure by guarding it according to God's scriptures. Yet he continues to cry out to him on that same basis now further in his journey as we imagine even an old man. And we compare this lesson to the parable of Jesus in Luke 18, and we learn this. It's na- we naturally assume that faith in God's power to deliver and his will to deliver to answer us in time of trouble will grow only when we experience answers to prayer. We naturally assume that when God answers our prayers, our faith will greatly grow. That's not necessarily wrong, but it's also not the only source of faith building. The author's confidence in God, God's delivering power and willingness to demonstrate it was strengthened through insistent prayer and obedience. Consistently obeying the Lord and consistently praying and not losing heart strengthens our faith. It is a mark of faith to continually bring our appeal, even if it feels like we've been praying for the same thing for 15 years in faith to the lord and it is also a faith strengthening act to follow the lord and to cling to his word even when it feels naturally to our flesh like it's not working now, i've tested that christian thing and it just didn't really work for me well this is a cynic who has not given enough time and has not uh, wisely judged the perspective of the lord's faithfulness from a sufficient period of years the young need to take this by faith and the old need to remind themselves of God's faithfulness over the course of their life in order to stay persistent and to model that consistent and disciplined prayer and obedience over the course of life. This is our calling. Now the psalmist recognizes that when he brings his prayer and this appeal for life, it is according to the promise of the Lord and his cry also presupposes an omnipotent priest. In verse 154, who is he praying to and how is his confidence gleaned? Well, plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. One of the secrets to the psalmist's persistence is because of who he's praying to. He reminds his soul that the one who he's praying to can plead his cause, can redeem him, and can give him life according to his promise. Now, this is only true if the one to whom the psalmist prays is an omnipotent, all-powerful priest, one who can intercede and intervene on his behalf. Plead my cause. You, as my high priest, intercede for me. Represent my case before a sovereign God and redeem me supply the necessary substitute payment for my bondage, my sin, and my slavery. Redeem and plead my case. Plead my cause and redeem me. This intercession leading to mediation via redemption. It's only possible if the Lord himself is the psalmist priest and as his priest, if he has the authority and the means to pay his redemption ransom, to pay his Sin's price. There is only one capable of supplying a sufficient redemption price for the debt of our sin. There is only one who can answer a prayer like this, and it is, of course, Jesus Christ, our High Priest, our Intercessor, and the one who, at the cost of his blood, paid the price for our redemption. I was reminded of Jonah's prayer in studying this this week in Jonah chapter two. He's in the belly of the whale. And he cries out, he says, may I once again return to the temple of the Lord. The close of his prayer, he says, my prayers have been heard at the temple of the Lord. I remember reading that and it struck me, this can only be true if Jonah has a supernatural priest. Somehow his prayer was heard in the belly of a fish and at the place where redemption is secured, his priest took up his case and delivered him. Jonah's deliverance came spiritually first And materially second, before the fish spit him up, he had the assurance of his sins atoned for because his omnipotent priest, his all-powerful, supernatural, sovereign Savior and Lord heard his prayer, even in that place of harsh discipline, the belly of the whale. And it was heard before the Lord, before his presence. And Jesus took up his cause and pleaded on his behalf. And before the Father said, Our elect son is pleading on the basis of your mercy and grace for salvation and deliverance from the belly of the whale. Go make that fish puke up my son on the beach. I have heard his prayer and I respond. The omnipotent priest has responded to Jonah. The guarantee of life according to God's promise. This is what the psalmist takes refuge in. God has promised on the power and the supply of his high priest to hear the prayer of those who depend on him for their redemption price to be paid. Plead my cause, redeem me, give me life according to your promise. The psalmist's prayer rests on the guarantee of life according to the Lord's promise of redemption through a priest who would supply the redemption payment and intervene no matter the trial. Secondly, the guarantee of life according to God's rules. The next three verses take up this theme of the rules of God in the context of the psalmist's prayer, 153. Salvation, 55. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. So in our text, that's the second basis for appeal for life, according to not just promise, but also rules. Then 157. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Uh, these three verses might, do, might be divided in the following way. Number one, rules as judgment, 155. Secondly, rules as mercy, 156. And 157, according to the rules of God, there is conflict between two segments of humanity. Rules, what are they? Well, rules in context here are given or are assumed in two senses. Number one, the rule is the standard whereby cases are to be judged. And secondly, a rule is like a, uh, the rule can be considered a ruling, the judgment of the authority in the particular case before him. So one is the standard and one is the case. And both of these are in mind or in view when the psalmist says, Give me life according to your rules. Give me life according to your standards of righteousness and give me life according to your rule, ruling in my particular case. Now, depending on where you stand with the Lord, the rules of God either mark your condemnation and judgment or like the psalmist, they they are a mercy and a gift to you. This is the difference between being under wrath and under grace. Have you ever heard that distinction as it applies to salvation, conversion, Christianity, to being born again? Before we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, what are we? We are under wrath. We are rightly judged according to the rules of God of falling immeasurably short of his standard of perfection. And what is his ruling? What do we deserve? So long as we are under, under wrath, we deserve the judgments of God The righteousness of God poured out in his wrath that would result in eternal uh, distance from God and an object of his suffering and his consequences for sin, death, even hell itself. That's what it means to be under wrath. But when we are under grace, when we have made that appeal to our omnipotent high priest and his death has paid for our sin's debt, now we are moved from wrath to grace. And now we have a different relationship to the rules of the Lord. Under wrath, rules are judgment, where they spell judgment. So consider the relationship of the wicked to the statutes of the Lord. The unbeliever is a born enemy of God. All of us are in our sin. We are born enemies of God since Adam, ever motivated to maximize our self fulfillment at the cost of dishonoring the structures of God, or the stricture, if you will the standards of God's rule that stand in our way. In this frame of soul, the rules of God testify to our condemnation. However, and this is 155, Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. They distance themselves as far as they can from the statutes of the Lord because they don't want to become accountable of, to their sin. They want to be held accountable to their sin, though this is inevitable. And they want to, in obstinate denial, delusionary, if that's a word, delusional rejection of God's standards, they do not cling to the rules of the Lord. Instead, they run from them, pretend that they don't exist, or rebel overtly against them. This is not the case for the psalmist, though. He says, great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. For the psalmist, he has a different relationship to the rules of God. For him, they don't mark condemnation and judgment, but indeed they are a source of life. These, this is, because of his saved relationship with the Lord, an example of rules as mercy. Rules as mercy. With the transformation of the heart comes a change in our relationship to the law. What we once resented, dismissed, or otherwise disregarded or quaked before with the knowing a realization that we deserve hell itself and there's no escape, whereas that was the situation when rules spelled judgment for, not, for us, we now understand and embrace them as God's beautiful engineering for all of life, for our good and for his glory. I love testimonies of the move from wrath to grace. I love to think about my own. I'm sure you do as well. Do you ever hear that moving testimony and it just catches you at the right moment and you're listening to God's transforming work in the heart of someone and it just gets you choked up? That happened to me this week. I was listening to a podcast, one of my favorites, which just kind of goes back to the music of my own coming-of-age experience. I suppose at my age we're all guilty of this sort of sentimental attachment to the quote-unquote good old days, right? So I'm listening to a guy who started a Christian rock band some 24 years ago And he talked about the course of his life, and his testimony really snuck up on me. It got to the point where he was so disillusioned, and he was so jaded by the music industry and the expectations that Christians and the Christian culture was putting on him, that he said, you know, the last thing I did before the band kicked me out is I wrote a song with every cheesy cliche I could think of. And I said, oh, the Christian music radio will love this song. And just as almost as a self-parody and a joke in my own soul, I put it together, and put it out there, and sure enough, it, uh, it became our most popular song. He said, I began to resent the demands upon me. I remember one time a Christian music uh, so, so-and-so industry guru came to me and said, you know, basically boils down to this. The more times you mention Jesus, the more money that you'll make And instead of taking these things into consideration, recognizing, you know, probably the corrupt or certainly the corruption within this industry and then taking a different stand. He rejected it all. Even Christ himself and distanced himself more and more and more from Christianity until he was getting into bar fights on the road, getting drunk and inebriated, living a lawless life and eventually had to quit the band. He lost his marriage during this time. His life fell apart. He flew home, he said, four times to tell his Christian parents how things were going. And never could get the courage to bring to their attention what he was going through until finally the breaking point was reached and he spilled all his guts during this emotional during this time he had met a gal in a bar she was unchurched a nominal catholic from another country um, ireland as i recall and they began to hang out his divorce was finalized eventually and his mom couldn't get him to go to church. His dad could not reach him with the gospel. He was hard. He was unrepentant. He was jaded. He was beat up by what he considered to be the culture of Christianity he had listened to and, and, and tried to make his career by it. It had all fallen apart. He wasn't interested. His mom finally reached out to his girlfriend and said, would you go with me to a production? She said, sure. She said, would you go with me to him, her boyfriend? Okay. Reluctantly, he tags along. A church filled with elderly people, they sit down for this production called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. And of course, it's poorly produced. There's feedback. It's cringy. And he just shrinks back into his seat, resenting every minute of it. Can't wait till the service is done. But afterwards, the pastor, an elderly fellow, gives that typical altar call. With every head bowed and every eyes closed, would you raise your hand if you'd like to commit your life to Jesus today? If you've been in evangelical circles any length of time, you'll recognize that language. Suddenly, this dude, so jaded and lost, resenting Christ, Christianity, and all of his people, felt a tap on his shoulder. Will you go down to the altar with me? His girlfriend's heart had been stirred. Reluctantly, once again, he went. The pastor said, repeat after me, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. He began to repeat those words, and he said, I cannot explain it. But as soon as those words came out of my mouth i was transformed i was at the altar not because of my girlfriend but now because of me and i turned from my sin i couldn't believe that jesus had died for me he left that place with his girlfriend both of them having a transformed experience at that altar in spite of all the cliches and all the bitterness of his past in a moment heart transformed and their first stop on the way home was at a christian bookstore And they spent what little money they had on some Bibles and devotionals. The next week, he called his buddy. He knew he was a pastor of another church and said, can I come and set up chairs? I need to be with the people of God. Today, six, eight years later, he leads worship at that church. And he said, I'm so thankful and humble for it. And my old life, I don't even really talk about that much. I just love Jesus. Jesus. And that story just tugged at my soul. I wanted to pass it along to you because it's an example of moving clearly from wrath to grace. You know, some of us, we've grown up in Christian homes, you have Christian parents, or you've been in church a long time, and it's easy to grow jaded with the blessing and benefit of that and to see it as a cringy cliche. I would encourage you to not do that. See things according to the truth of what the scriptures say and recognize that it's only by the grace of God that you know something or are surrounded by people who also love Jesus, who also have a testimony of moving from wrath to grace. Embrace it with persistence and consistency and recognize, whereas at one point in your life, the rules of God in that jaded, hard heart stand as judgment against you. If that man had died in that condition, he surely would have gone to hell, but he avoided hell's flames and heaven's gates were opened. Why? Because he changed in his heart in the position of that man's soul in relationship to the laws of God, came from one from wrath to mercy to grace. He stopped on purpose because he wanted to and loved the idea and bought Christian books and that Bible because he now was clinging to the Lord's rules. There is conflict in our own souls between these two ideals, is there not? There's conflict between the unbeliever and the believer. The soul must recognize this. This is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. We're aware of this in our own souls. We're aware of it in the world in which we live. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands, he goes on to say. Many are my persecutors, 157, and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I'm going to cling to that Bible. Imagine you're in a life life raft on an open sea. You're bleeding and it's storming. There's two attitudes you can have with that life raft. Granted, it's only 12 feet long. It's only six feet wide. That is the parameters. You are a prison to that life raft. What if this bleeding man in shark-infested waters in this stormy sea stands up and says, I will be free from this life raft and jumps off and is devoured by the predators and the waves. That's the attitude of the heart of unbelief and the unbeliever. He hates the strictures of the life raft. He hates what God has laid out according to his rules. But when you recognize the danger of living a life disregarding the Lord and his standards of holiness, that life raft becomes the most precious thing to you. You wouldn't trade it for a million dollars. You cling to the ropes against that inflatable side until they run into your skin and you wait for the storms of life and the predators to subside until by the grace of God, you sail into that harbor of eternal glory, loving that raft, loving its ropes, and loving God's mercy carrying you through the stormy sea. This is a whole different heart and attitude the psalmist has. He loves the rules of God. They are those ropes, they are that life raft. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Can you hear it? I cling to that life raft, to your rules. Sure, they may restrict me. For now, I may feel like I only have freedom to go 12 feet this way and 6 feet that But that's not the point. This is my salvation. This is my joy. This is my hope. This will carry me through. But then we look at the sea of all the world promises. In our delusional frame of mind, I will be free jump into the shark infested waters of the sinful indulgence that the world promises and we will be gobbled up so quick we may forget that Jesus Christ is that life raft, the only way of hope and healing. The psalmist prays for the guarantee of life according to the Lord's rules. He recognizes that his rules are a mercy and he loves and clings to them because they represent for him his hope and his stay. Final point this morning, the guarantee of life according to the Lord's steadfast love. 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The psalmist comments on his own affections holding them accountable, calibrating them, if you will, to what is truly lovely and what's truly disgusting, love and disgust. The psalmist, through the course of his whole song, expresses a range of desires or affections that are calibrated or they are set according to God's holiness. He hates that which God hates, as we've said before, and loves that which God loves. Note the relationship between the look of the Lord upon him and his own look in verses 153 compared to 158. 153, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. There's sort of an allusion here to that high priestly prayer of Aaron. Uh, Turn your face upon me, Lord, your countenance upon me. Um, We uh, think of that prayer that is so uh, commonly understood uh, or is uh, common to pray, I, I think, when I was growing up. My parents prayed that prayer of the uh, Aaron's prayer over me. Lord, lift up your countenance upon me. And uh, I'm just drawing a blank right now as far as the rest of how the verse goes. But as we think about this, the look of the Lord and his countenance and his face turning upon us in spite of our affliction and in our affliction, and we cry for deliverance. We see that there's a relationship to 158. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. In other words, pairing those two, we recognize there's a relationship. Lift up your countenance upon me, be gracious to me and deliver me. The look of the Lord upon us and our own look or our own countenance, there's a relationship between the two. The Lord looks upon those who look upon him with loveliness, who love him. The Lord looks upon those, and he is responsible for changing their heart, who look upon the faithless with disgust. When you get together with your friends, and you're talking about things that interest you. If there's a shared disgust for something, it becomes a theme in your conversation. Oh, I hate it when thus and so, or don't you find it annoying with this and this and uh, thing or the other? And on, conversely, on the other side, when there's shared loves or interest or experiences, oh, I love this and don't, isn't it encouraging or what, what have you done in this last week, it gives you something that you have in common and something to talk about. Now, our relationship with the Lord is similar. When we share what he loves and that which disgusts him, discuss us, then that communion with the Lord has a new fullness and dimension to it that can only be realized after he changes our hearts. Then and only then can we consider how, we can cl- uh, cry to the Lord, consider how I love your precepts, how I cling to your gospel for salvation. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Is sin tempting? Of course it is. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. What do we direct our attention to? Is sin enticing? Is it always and only enticing? Sin is enticing when temptations are weighed according to the flesh, our natural sinful desires. But when, this is what the psalmist uh, models, when through diligent prayer, devotion, and repentance, such as that modeled in Psalm 119. Temptation is weighed according to the lovely precepts of God's word Then it appears disgusting to our souls. Um, We have a whole house filter in our home, and you don't really notice the iron until it starts to collect and build, but you can pull out that filter and you see the sludge on it. And so we've chosen to drink water with the sludge removed. This repentance, devotion, and prayer, this diligence in our walk with the Lord is like a filter where the sludge of sin increasingly gets removed from our thoughts, intent, our heart, our meditations, and our decisions. Temptations are enticing. Sin is attractive if we don't have that filter in place. But if we embrace the heart of the psalmist through diligent prayer, devotion, devotion, and repentance, then we begin with that filter in place to weigh temptation according to the lovely precepts of God's Word. And then sin increasingly appears disgusting to our souls. So there's a lesson here for us. Give me life, the psalmist says. I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. This is the repeat, a repeated appeal through the course of the psalm. Verse 25, 37, 40. 188, 149, and three times in our text, the psalmist cries, give me life. This is a similar cry or related to uh, Jacob and how he was revived, just to tie into a prior sermon as well. The testimony of the resurrection, if you will, of Joseph gave him life. It revived him. The psalmist cries out for sources of encouragement and life. The resurrection of Jesus, as we stated in that text before, has reviving power. So do, according to the psalmist, the meditation of the Lord's promises, statutes, testimonies, words, law, commandments, and testimonies. Give me life according to your promise. Give me life according to your rules. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Give me life according to your justice. These things have reviving power. As we consider the Lord in his justice, do study perhaps on these words. Meditate on the Lord and His promises. Consider His faithfulness to us. Love and appreciate His rules. And understand and discern life according to the things that He has laid out, the statutes for righteousness in His word. As we behold and appreciate His steadfast love, then we feel the reviving life of the Lord rush into our souls. And the cry, give me life, is answered as we consider Him. The word of God is the absolute final authority and source and sufficiency for all these things. And let us close there with the final verse of Psalm, or the uh, 20th stanza of Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. His reminding his soul, now as I imagine, later in life, At the, toward the end of his song and closer to the end of his journey, where the gates of heaven open to welcome him, that the word of God is the sufficient and the eternal source of truth. He has echoed this in stanza 19, the last verse. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. He has echoed it again in 18, final verse 144, 18th stanza. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. The longer you go in your Christian walk, the older you get the more important it is to recognize and remind yourself of the absolute word of God, both in concept in this big picture, the sum of your word is truth, and in each particular detail, every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so may we with the psalmist, learning from his example, always consider the word of God, the last word, and cling to it with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our strength and in so doing, that we would truly love the Lord, even as we cry in whatever trial we might be facing right now for the Lord to give us life according to His justice, His promise, His rules, and His steadfast love. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the grace and mercy offered to us in the sufficient provision of Your Word. For souls that are weary or souls that are lost, we have heard, even in the Scriptures today, a sufficient call to repentance, faith, and encouragement from your holy word. I pray that we would heed it today. Open our hearts to receive what you have graciously proclaimed through your truth, that wherever this word finds us, we might hear and live. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.